Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. And good evening, everybody. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC in New York, your Tuesday night host for Indivisible, our national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump administration. Day 61. Yesterday was two months exactly since the world started to change in Trumpian ways. On these Tuesday Indivisible episodes, we keep track of how this unbound president is challenging American norms, for better or for worse. And tonight we'll do two things. Later, our very special guest will be former U.S. Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez from the George W. Bush administration. He'll give us his take on the Neil Gorsuch uh, Supreme Court hearing today and the James Comey Russia and surveillance hearings from yesterday. And we will open the phones for a very rare session of Ask a U.S. Attorney General. Any questions about that central job in our democracy or these two hearings for Alberto Gonzalez in about a half hour. But first, changing norms in the media. We all know there were instances of fake news stories that were widely disseminated during the election campaign. And we all know that President Trump often accuses the mainstream media of spreading fake news. We'll talk to Margaret Sullivan, Washington Post media columnist now. Before that, she was public editor, like the ombudsperson for the New York Times. In other words, she was paid to be a critic of the quality of their journalism from within. Last week, she wrote a column in the Washington Post about how traditional media can take back the agenda setting from hyper-partisan media that sometimes literally just makes stuff up. And the way it turns out, those media sources are generally pro-Trump. That's not bias. That's just a count. So hi, Margaret Sullivan. Welcome to Indivisible. Thank you, Brian. Good to be here. And listeners, here's our question for the first part of the hour. If you voted for Donald Trump or you did not vote for Trump, call and tell us where do you get your news and what makes you trust that it's real news? And remember, since this is the show where we get outside our echo chambers that's central to our mission, I'm asking very earnestly for people who voted for Donald Trump and people who did not vote for Donald Trump, where do you get your news and what makes you trust that it's real news? Call us at 844-745-TALK, 844 844- Seven four five eight two five five eight four four seven four five. talk We will save half our lines for each group, and we only have 10 lines. So if you get bumped, it's not because we're censoring you. It's because we're looking for half Trump voters and half not Trump voters. Where do you get your news, and what makes you trust that it's real news? Is it that you agree with its political slant? Do you do extreme vetting of any kind on your news sources of choice? 844-745-TALK, 844-745-TALK. Now, as your calls are coming in, let me begin with the life cycle of an apparent fake news story that made it into the mainstream ecosystem and into the president's mouth. You know that President Trump claimed that British intelligence spied on him during the campaign 
for the Obama administration. Here's how the president seemed to first hear of that idea. From Fox News Channel legal analyst Judge Andrew Napolitano last week on the Fox and Friends morning show. Three intelligence sources have informed Fox News that President Obama went outside the chain of command. He didn't use the NSA, he didn't use the CIA, he didn't use the FBI, and he didn't use the Department of Justice. He used GCHQ. What the heck is GCHQ? That's the initials for the British spying agency. So that caused the president to cite that allegation during his news conference with German Chancellor Angela Merkel. All we did was quote a certain uh, very talented legal mind who was the one responsible for saying that on television. I didn't make an opinion on it. That was a statement made by a very talented lawyer on Fox. And so you shouldn't be talking to me. You should be talking to Fox. You should be talking to Fox. Well, Fox took that very seriously and issued its own statement refuting its own legal analyst. Here is Fox anchor Shepard Smith on the air in his newscast. Judge Andrew Napolitano commented on the morning show Fox and Friends that he has sources who say British intelligence was involved in surveillance at Trump Tower. Our White House team will have much more on that from the White House in just a moment. Fox News cannot confirm Judge Napolitano's commentary. Fox News knows of no evidence of any kind that the now President of the United States was surveilled at any time in any way, full stop full stop. And it got further laid to rest yesterday when NSA Director Admiral Mike Rogers was asked about it at his House Intelligence Committee hearing by Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff of California. Schiff used the initials for British intelligence, GCHQ. Did you ever request that your counterparts in GCHQ should wiretap Mr. Trump on behalf of President Obama? No, sir, nor would I. That would be expressly against the construct of the Five Eyes Agreement that's been in place for decades. And the Five Eyes are some of our closest intelligence partners, and Britain Britain is one of them. Yes, sir. Have you seen any evidence that anyone else in the Obama administration made such a request? No, sir. And again, my view is the same as Director Comey. I've seen nothing on the NSA side that we engaged in any such activity, nor that anyone ever asked us to engage in such activity. Well, it was a very lively, if fatal, few days for the theory that the British spied on Trump at the request of Obama. And Fox News Channel, as of yesterday, uh, as of yesterday at least, was keeping Andrew Napolitano off the air. Again, our guest is Margaret Sullivan, Washington Post media columnist. Margaret, do you see this incident as an aberration or as indicative of a kind of fake news ecosystem that's emerging as more prominent? Well, it's it's actually fairly, it's become fairly common and almost typical. The The thing that's so notable about it, I think, Brian, is that the president has at his command a great deal of uh, information from America's own intelligence agencies. So the idea that he's getting this from Fox News is, I think, pretty peculiar. Um, and, you know, to have it go really from from Fox into the president's mouth, as you say, and to be disseminated very broadly from there um, is problematic, to say the least. Trump has famously denounced mainstream news articles that use anonymous sources. But as we heard in the original clip there, Napolitano only cited anonymous sources in his original commentary. Any idea where the British spying thing actually originated to even get to him? 
I, I don't know. I, uh, it's, it's puzzling. And, you know, as, as we now know, it's been, uh, it's been denied by Fox and, you know, has pretty much, uh, gone away as a, as a credible idea. All right. So listeners, whether you voted for Donald Trump or whether you didn't vote for Donald Trump, where do you get your news and what makes you trust that it's real news? Call us at 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255, 844-745-TALK. And if you want to keep the conversation going on Twitter, you can use the hashtag Indivisible Radio, hashtag Indivisible Radio. Let's take our first caller, a Trump supporter from Hartford, Connecticut. Nick, you're on Indivisible. Thanks so much for calling. Thank you very much for taking my call. Yes, I'm a, a very avid Trump supporter from Hartford. And uh, I like your show so far. Um, I get my news sources mainly from YouTube. I listen to many folks on YouTube, both lefty and righty. And mainly for credibility, I believe it more when it comes from the actual source. Like if I'm watching a clip of the actual person who made the news talk about it, rather than just uh, a news anchor regurgitated or something like that. Can you give but, me an uh, example? Can- I mean, it's important to say I take everything with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Can you give me an example of somebody who you consider an original newsmaker who has a YouTube channel? No, no, no. Excuse me. Uh, I watch YouTube for the um, arrangements of the news. Uh, for example, I'll watch the Jimmy Dore show. Very lefty, but I love Jimmy Dore, even though I'm a Trump supporter. Uh-huh. He'll have a clip of uh, he'll have a clip of like like James Comey himself talking, or someone at the Dakota Access Pipeline who's actually there talking. It's more believable. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Margaret, do you have any question for Nick? Not not a question, but I um, I do think that it, it, Nick has a, a point that's that's very interesting. Um, there is a a distrust, a mistrust in this sort of gatekeeper function that the news media used to have, and I think this is part of why the president has been so successful with Twitter because it's a way that he can take his message directly to the people and bypass the traditional news media. Now, as a member of the media. I don't particularly like that, but um, I can see from what Nick says and from how a lot of people feel, it's quite effective. Nick, I'm just curious, as an avid Trump supporter, as you describe yourself, are you disillusioned at all by what seems to be, now we have the FBI director and the NSA director and Fox News' Shepard Smith kind of saying he made that thing up? Yes, uh, I, I don't like Trump so much for all this tit-for-tat. I'm a real Trump supporter because of manufacturing. That's a core value, an actual thing that's actually going to happen. A lot of the spying stuff, the Russian meddling, I don't really believe too much of any of it, and it is frustrating, uh, mainly from a a childish point of view. I want to talk about real things that affect real people now. Uh, All the tit-for-tat back and forth, uh, it, it becomes childish from both sides both left and right. I don't like to listen to any of it. Uh, it's, it's a waste of time unless somebody is truly proven to, broken, to have broken the law. I'm not too interested in hearing about people speculating on what may have happened, even from Trump himself. Nick, yes, I do go to Trump's Twitter, and I love it, but when I read it, I also take it with a grain of salt, but I'm thankful it's actually from him directly. Nick, thank you so much for starting us off. We really appreciate it. Uh, more Trump voters or non-Trump voters 
Uh, his um, Trump supporter line has just opened up now that we finished with Nick in Hartford. 844-745-TALK. If you did vote for Donald Trump or consider yourself a Trump supporter, where do you get your news and what makes you confident that it's credible news? 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255 with Margaret Sullivan, media columnist for the uh, Washington Post. Margaret, in your column, you gave another outlandish example, a made-up story that the CIA is who hacked the DNC emails during the election, then gave it to WikiLeaks to frame Russia. First of all, how do you know it's fake news? And what's it an example of in a larger sense? Right. Well, uh, you know, it is. it has been, become difficult for all of us to figure out what's fake and what isn't. Um, one of the one of the things that I like to recommend to people is to uh, compare and contrast news sources. So if there's something that seems uh, startling and hard to believe, it's a good idea to go to news sources that you think are really trustworthy and see if they too are reporting it. Um, you know that certainly that certainly was not the case here. Um, and you raise the troubling possibility that you can't fight propaganda with standard journalism. That would mean you can't fight lies with the truth. And that's well, troubling. Why yeah, might that it, be the it, case? It I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love to think that, you know, just good solid reporting will, will win the day and that fake news will kind of go away because it'll be overcome by traditional reporting. But I, I, I wish I could believe that, but I really don't. So I think that we in the mainstream media, and I don't say that in a disparaging way, I can say it in just sort of a, a practical way, I think we have to become much better at uh, constantly informing our readers, our viewers, our listeners about um, you know, helping them understand what is real and what isn't real. I liked what Nick said about taking everything with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. And I think we all need to be doing that uh, all the time. And that the media, the news media can help viewers and listeners with that. Stacy in Kansas City, you're on Indivisible. Stacy, thanks so much for calling. Yes, I wanted to agree with what Ms. Sullivan just said about cross-checking news sources. Um, I will admit that I get most of my news from primarily NPR, and I read a lot what comes through my Facebook feed. But I caught a friend of mine in a, just an egregious false news story. And, and we should say, let me just jump in for context on you, that you identified yourself as somebody who did not vote for Trump, right? That's correct. Yes. Okay, go ahead. Uh, Facebook feed, there was a, a headline that came across that said Obama was going to ban the Pledge of Allegiance from being said in schools, and I thought, that's ridiculous. I read the article, and actually, this is the thing, I read the article. I read the entire article, and the first, like, five paragraphs sounded like it might be legit, and then it took a complete left turn to the point where I was like, this can't be real. Um, and then the last couple paragraphs came back to, to be more sensible. It looked for everything like this was coming from ABC News. So I went and checked. I went out to NPR's website. They had nothing about it. I checked CNN. I, quite frankly, I checked Fox because I thought if anyone will be all over this, uh -huh. it will be Fox. They hadn't reported anything out on it. So I went back to try to, to go to ABC News' website to see if I could find it again, only to come to find out that that's how I started to realize there was fake news coming out that it wasn't even on ABC News' website, and the ABC News, like I looked at the router, like the address was different from what was coming in my Facebook feed. Yeah, you really did so your, that was, 
your extreme vetting. Right. <laughs> and I did. Well, because the, the article was crazy. Like, the article was crazy. And so I challenged my friend. I'm like, did you even read this article? I think people are posting things that they're not even reading. Um, so I agree also with this idea of going, um, not just trusting what comes through my Facebook feed. If something catches my eye, I've, I've trained myself to go out to Fox News or to go out to the New York Times or to go out to NPR to check my sources before I just trust what comes through my Facebook feed. Because for at the first glance, it really looked like it was coming from ABC News, but indeed it was not. There is a famous fake news site that poses right. as ABC News, as that in particular. Uh, Margaret Sullivan, mm-hmm. what do you want to add? Just that, that that there is a fake news site that looks, you know, it has some of the same uh, letters. It starts off ABC and it, you know, it, it's very easy to get tricked by it. And of course, they're being very clever about how they're presenting themselves. So, Stacy, I can see uh, why that would have happened. It's unfortunate that news consumers have to become uh, almost uh, investigators or detectives, which is what you're describing. But I think it's great that you are doing that, and I, I sure wish a lot more people would, too. Stacy, I'm curious. Do you do anything like our previous caller, Nick in Connecticut, who said he consciously goes outside his bubble, or at least he, as an avid Trump supporter, as he described himself, listens to things from the left that he likes, listens to things from the right that he likes? Do you try to get out of your political echo chamber? I do. I honestly have watched more Fox News in the past, you know, 61 days than I have previously ever in my life, uh, mainly because I'm trying to see what is coming out of the other side um, or to see how, how things are covered or to see, quite frankly, why my friends who are who are conservative view me in a certain way. And I'm like, they must be getting this view from someplace. Huh. Um, and so now that you've uh, and, become and I, a... I hear their talking points. I hear their talking points on, on on Fox News. So when someone says something to me, I'm like, oh, I heard, I heard, I know where you got this, because I heard that too. And so then do your conservative <laughs> friends just sound like parrots to you, um, like sock puppets for, you know, the conservative media? Or are you also learning something from Fox News about another way to see the world? Uh, I am learning something about another way to see the world. Unfortunately, that other way of seeing the world makes me personally very sad. And I'm sure to my conservative friends that I sound like a sock puppet, puppet for the, let me see, what was it, a crybaby liberal media. So um, it goes both ways. Stacy, thank you very much. We'll continue with more of your calls, whether you voted for Donald Trump or did not vote for Donald Trump. Where do you get your news? And what makes you trust that it's real news? 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255 on Indivisible. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. On Mondays through Thursdays for the first hundred days of the Trump administration, on Day 61, I'm your Tuesday night host, Brian Lehrer. 
Coming up in 10 minutes, it's Ask an Attorney General. We will have former U.S. Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez here to comment on yesterday's Comey hearing, today's Gorsuch hearing, and to take your calls, anything you've always wanted to ask a U.S. Attorney General but didn't have one over for dinner. Right now, we're talking with Washington Post media columnist Margaret Sullivan and asking, where do you get your news and what makes you trust that it's real news? We're saving half our lines for Trump voters and half for non-Trump voters as we continue to try to get everybody out of our echo chambers. 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. And Teresa in Nashville, you're on Indivisible. Hi, Teresa. Thanks so much for calling. Hi, Hi there. How are you? Good. And Trump supporter, I see. I'm a Trump supporter. And very much like I believe the last caller was Stacy and Nick before, um, I do the same. I jump from station to station. I listen to NPR, obviously. I'm listening to you. And really what I'd like to see happen, I want to just send out into the universe. I would like reporters to report. I am so tired of adjectives these really just vile, descriptive adjectives that our president is stupid. Um, I hated it when they did it with Obama. I just, I really don't appreciate that. And the fact that we have to go out and investigate ourselves, you know, we all, I'm not a reporter. I don't have that time. I'm not a journalist. I, um, I really wish that I could go to a source. Um, my sources are anywhere. CNN, Fox, um, NPR. I try and try. And there's a, a gentleman named Paul Craig Roberts that I think hits the mark on a lot of things. He's online. And um, I, I just, I watched the Gorsuch, um, and uh, I, I watched him being interviewed today. And I just can't believe sometimes what I see. And um, this is a day and age where, you know, we don't even believe what we see anymore because you can airbrush things. Mm-hmm. There's Photoshop. So Margaret Sullivan I wanted, wanted. I don't know how. Mar- Mar- let, let me invite Margaret Sullivan, Washington Post media columnist, to jump in and, and, and yes. talk to you. Margaret, uh, one interesting thing Teresa said was that she's tired of all these adjectives, especially right. strident adjectives. Yes. Uh, but react however you want. Yep. I mean, I do hear this a lot from from readers and news consumers. Uh, so, Teresa, you're not alone there. I think one of the things that's happened in our you know digital age is that news and opinion is hard to differentiate. Um, you know, something might come across our Facebook or we're going to see it on our phone and it may actually be a column or an opinion piece or something that, you know, it's OK that that has opinion in it because that's the whole idea of that of that kind of journalism, but it's not intended to be a news story, but it may not be labeled in a way that we can understand, uh, you know, what it is. And this is very different from, I know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is very different from, you know, sort of a time when, you know, you might be reading the newspaper and you would understand if something was on the front page, well, that's news. And if you got to the editorial page, well, you know that you in, you expected that to be opinion. Now it seems it's all kind of disaggregated, and we're just seeing it one piece at a time. And it really is tough to tell what's yes. what. 
And I'm I'm truthfully tired, and I'm sure that Stacey, I think her name was, mm-hmm. you know, I have the same kind of friends. Uh, I, I've got a lot of liberal friends, and I, I like to have intelligent conversations and ask them why they voted a certain way, and I would like them to be respectful of my opinion. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm also very, very tired of hearing that white guys, you know, old guys hired uh, hired Trump, you know, voted for Trump. You know, I'm a white middle-aged lady, and I he resonated with me. He did not offend me, um, and so I, I just I just find it. I, I would I'm going to ask just again out into the universe. I want to put out there, please, um, less editorializing. Um, let's talk more and be more respectful of each other. And I guess that's just my two cents and what I have to offer. That's worth two cents and more. Teresa, thank you so much. <laughs> let's go to Mary in Chapel Hill, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Hi, Mary. You're on Indivisible. Hi. So not a Trump um, supporter, I see. What? No, I'm not. Um, I, I, I go to very traditional sources from my news usually. Um, I, I look online, but I'm, I look at the Washington Post or the New York Times, things like that that I know will retract if they make a mistake and have, you know, um, differentiate between their opinion and their, and their uh, fact stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a person who always on, on social media, I've... Um, been skeptical of things that people post. So I'm the one that goes on and says, no, Betty White's not dead. And uh, no, that girl disappeared three years ago and they've already found her. (laughs) So do you find yourself going to sites like Snopes and things like that that look for the urban legends and debunk them? Yes, I, I do. And I look for, you know, if I see something and it it's surprising to me, I, I look to, to find, find it a couple of places. Mary, thank you very much. I'm going to move on to Philip in Irvington, New Jersey. Philip, you're on Indivisible. Hi. Hi. Glad to hear you. Glad to have you. Um, Trump supporter. Considering uh, your subject, I don't know what should I start. Uh, this means uh, oh, fake well, news. Uh, there are so many. Well, so I, I should start with, I think, most important. Uh, remembering that the election uh, was on November 8th and uh, Mr. Obama, the former president, he attended uh, several uh, pro-Hillary meeting, uh, meetings uh, day after day. And but, but let me direct you, sorry, Philip, just for, just for time, because we only have a couple of minutes left in this segment. Um, get to the media. Where do you get your news and what makes you trust that it's real news as a Trump voter? Ah, Newsmax, Breitbart. Uh, and why do I trust more them than others? Because uh, it, happening that it, it, it happened that I listened uh, in the past recordings from SN, MSNBC, ABC, and uh, I saw how do they filter the news. Even, okay, you have this lady, you have this lady, Margaret, uh, yes. your guest from Washington uh-huh. Post. What does, what does she say about uh, the fact that in November they said that the Russians hacked a nuclear, a nuclear plant in Vermont, and that was published in Washington uh, Post, and then uh, they... they uh, 
it, it was fake news. Yes. So, 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 Margaret, here's a challenging example. Philip sure. d- trusts the Washington Post less than he trusts Breitbart, which right. I think you would probably cite as more at risk of purveying fake news than the mainstream media in general. I do think so. And, you know, I, I remember the article that he's mentioning. Um, and, you know, the Washington Post did make an error in an early version of that story. And it was also quick to run a correction and to uh, fess up to its error. You know, when we're in the news business, we make mistakes. It's inevitable. I think those news organizations that are that are uh, credible um, are ones that will admit their mistakes and uh, and move on. So, uh, you know, I'm sorry you don't think that the Washington Post is credible, but I I um, I think that actually we are, and we do a pretty good job, including even with things when there are errors. Philip, how much is it that you're looking for things that seem to reinforce your point of view, and how much is it? as you see it, more objective than that about what's true and not true, that you're drawn to Breitbart and Newsmax? Let me tell you when I, uh, because sometimes like Newsmax, they they show video clips that they are not shown by the other side of the media, like like when Mr. President Obama, two days before the elections, he said, he, he said I heard I, I heard Mr. Obama video and audio saying in a pro-Hillary meeting that if, if Trump will be elected, he will reinstate the Jim Crow laws that were before 1960. Next day, Mr. Obama was another was in another meeting, I think, in Pennsylvania, where he said that he was informed that groups of white people, uh, white racists, were formed to to prevent black people to vote. This is what he said. So this is not what I'm saying. This is what Mr. Obama said at the meeting. Mm -hmm. So now, considering that uh, pro-democratic media doesn't show this kind of recordings like with Mr. Obama or other people, does not make them public, I'm looking to outlets that uh, that inform me about these kinds of things. Philip, thank you very much. Much. Are you familiar with that um, instance that Philip was citing? I don't want to leave something that I haven't heard of that sounds, you know, fairly inflammatory. I, I don't. I don't know about that. I'm sorry to say, Brian. So I'm neither going to confirm nor deny. But Philip says that he he saw that. So we will leave that un unfact checked and unverified for the moment. Um, we have Judge Gonzalez standing by. Take just a last minute. Um, on the part of your article that says news organizations have to acknowledge their own biases internally more and constantly report against them and that, you know, you you think that... But that'll help. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that we ran into this um, during the campaign. You know, we, we too were in our own bubbles. And um, I think we've learned something from that, that we need to get outside our own... Uh, our own filter bubbles to some extent, and I, I, you know, not all are of the same level, but to realize that there are a lot of different ways of thinking out there, and we ought to become familiar with all of them. Margaret Sullivan, media columnist for The Washington Post, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks, Brian. It was fun. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump administration, where we try to get out of our media echo chambers and listen to our fellow Americans as well as talk. And we talk on these Tuesday night shows about how much the new president is challenging American norms for better or for worse. 
It's only Tuesday, and this is already a momentous week in the first 100 days story with a highly unusual testimony from the FBI director yesterday that the Trump campaign is being investigated in connection with Russia's role in the election season and with the all-day testimony today of Supreme Court nominee Neil Gorsuch. We will get some thoughts on these developments and more from a very special guest, the former United States Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez, who served in that position under President George W. Bush from 2005 to 2007, and before that as President Bush's White House counsel and a justice on the Texas Supreme Court. When Bush was president, Gonzalez was seriously considered for a nomination to the United States Supreme Court and helped other people prepare for the kind of hearing that Neil Gorsuch was undergoing today. Gonzalez is now dean of the Belmont University College of Law in Nashville and author of a memoir called True Faith and Allegiance, a story of service and sacrifice in war and peace, which came out last fall. Judge Gonzalez, thanks for joining us again. Welcome back to Indivisible. Well, it's good to be back. You're absolutely right. It's been a, a, a very impactful week already, and uh, you know, more more remains to come, I'm sure. And listeners, our phones are open for what we will call Ask an Attorney General, a rare opportunity <laughs> to ask a former U.S. Attorney General and State Supreme Court Justice anything you want about anything in the news today and how it really works. So anything about the Gorsuch nomination or the mechanics of that, the FBI investigation on Russia and the campaign, the FBI is under the Attorney General, or the role of Attorney General itself, so different under Sessions already than Obama's two AGs, it seems. Call us with your questions for Judge Alberto Gonzalez at 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255, 844-745-TALK. And folks, this segment is just for questions. We want your curiosity more than your opinions on this segment. Ask a U.S. Attorney General, a rare opportunity. Judge Gonzalez, for my own questions, I'm going to try to hit a few different topics and let me start with the Gorsuch hearings. I've been watching on and off today, and it seems like such a scripted and kind of deadly piece of theater on all sides. Democrats try to get him to take positions on specific areas of the law to show how conservative he is. Gorsuch repeatedly demurs because he's a sitting judge and those topics might come before him. I'm pretty sure if it was Merrick Garland and the shoe was on the other foot, the roles would be reversed. So are confirmation hearings a waste of time at this point that Americans can't actually learn anything from? I think that's a very legitimate question. I'm traveling, so I've only had limited uh, access to the television to watch the hearings. I did catch one aspect of the Gorsuch response where he talked about uh, he was lamenting about what's happened today in terms of our confirmation hearings and his former boss, Byron White, his confirmation hearing lasted 90 minutes. And he said that he smoked, ex- Byron White smoked cigarettes during his confirmation hearing. So obviously things have changed and there is such an attempt to, um, to gather as much information to uncover any little bit of um, dirt, um, anything that may be used as ammunition by by the opposing party um, against the president's nominee. So it's um, it's really, I think, unfortunate. It's a, an extremely grueling process. On the one hand, I, I understand this is a lifetime appointment, 
And I also understand that Supreme Court justices have tremendous power in the way that they interpret the Constitution and the laws passed by Congress. But you do have to wonder whether or not, you know, why are we under why are we undergoing as an audience, and why is a nominee undergoing as a nominee? You know, uh, this endless questioning uh, when when everyone knows that the nominee is not, if he's been if he or she's been uh, appropriately prepared is not going to answer any question which 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 may in any way indicate how that person is going to rule on a particular case. It may come before that person if in fact that person is confirmed. Yeah. Uh, nonetheless, you know, it, this is where we're at today. You know, every judge or Supreme Court justice that I've ever interviewed insists that they check their politics at the door when they take a seat on the bench. Uh, Gorsuch today was talking about sort of the sacred, he didn't use the word sacred, but it's kind of what he meant, um, act of putting on the robe and how it kind of transforms them, the physical robe. But then almost every justice appointed by a Democrat usually rules in a way that seems to find the law on the side of liberal policies and the ones appointed by Republicans, the opposite. So how can it be that all these people trying to look past policy to the law keep finding the law on the side of the people who appointed them? Because I think Democratic presidents appoint people with a certain method or uh, they use certain certain principles in deciding the cases. And it's not totally surprising that you're going to find that uh, all of those appointed by Democrats are going to approach cases the same way and reach the same kind of result. And the same holds true with respect to appointees of Republican presidents. I agree with you. Uh, look, we should strive always to have a judiciary that uh, whose members do attempt to put aside their biases. Um, we all need to acknowledge that, of course, we're human beings, and we all have birth biases and opinions, but that doesn't mean that we just give in to those biases and opinions. I think we need to nominate people of such character and discipline that, the, that they recognize that they have inherent biases on various issues, and they do the very best they can to put those biases aside. I'm not suggesting that they're always successful in doing that, but I'd like to think that you know we that, that our presidents are nominating men and women to the Supreme Court uh, of that kind of character and that kind of discipline that they recognize that those biases exist and they they do the very best they can in putting them aside. But getting back to your initial question, yes, I, I agree that um, it does appear that if you're appointed by a Republican president, uh, by different Republican presidents, you, you seem to always be voting in one block, and the same holds true for those people appointed by Democratic yeah. presidents. I, 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 I do believe it's because And I have to jump in, have so we, we have yeah. to take a break. I'll let you finish this thought after the break, and then we'll start to go to your calls. Ask a U.S. Attorney General. 844-745-TALK on Indivisible. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And I'm Brian Lehrer with former U.S. Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez on the Gorsuch hearing, the Comey hearing, and a rare session of Ask the Attorney General, a rare opportunity to ask a question of a real-life former United States Attorney General at 
talk. Did you want to finish a thought about something from before the break, or should I go to a caller? Go to a caller. Mike in Norristown, Pennsylvania. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, hi, sir. Thank you. First of all, this is my first time hearing this show. It's awesome, and it's a true honor to speak to a former attorney general. And, sir, I'd like to ask you if you think that one of the senators on Gorsuch's confirmation hearings should ask him the definition of perjury, the legal definition of perjury, and when he answers that, do you think he should ask him whether or not he thinks the current attorney general perjured himself? Thank you, Mike. Well, if, if well, I don't think any Republican is going to ask him that question. I guess your question is whether or not should a Democrat ask him that question. That, that of course, is going to be up to Democrats. And uh, how General Gorsuch would respond to that, I don't know. I will say this. Uh, if, in fact, he has been properly briefed, he's not going to get a question that hasn't been anticipated. So I'd have to hope that he's, he's anticipated this question. His handlers have anticipated the question, and he will have an appropriate response. It may not be responsive to the question, but he will have a response to that question. Um, you know, again, you're getting sort of into the politics here, and any, any, any kind of response that may hint in any way that he thought that, that General Sessions may have perjured himself is something that that um, I think uh, Judge Gorsuch is smart enough uh, and adept enough to uh, avoid falling into that kind of trap. What's, what's, so, what's your own opinion, since you're not being uh, vetted for the United States Supreme Court today, about Sessions saying that he didn't meet with Russians during the campaign and then it got revealed that he did? Here's, here's what we have to remember. We have to put this in context. I have been in that chair where you're sitting for hours and hours uh, taking questions. And sometimes when you answer a question, in your own mind, you're rethinking your answer, even as the senator is asking you the next question. And sometimes you don't hear it quite right, or sometimes you hear the question and you think, well, this is what he's really asking. This is what she really wants to know. And you sort of respond to the question you believe that, that the questioner is asking. I think that one can make the argument legitimately that that's what happened with respect to Senator Sessions. So I don't have a problem with that. What is a little bit more troublesome to me is the supplemental response that he, he provided in writing, where it's I think it would have been better and actually perhaps even more accurate to simply say, I misunderstood your question. This is a question that I thought you were asking, and this is why I answered the way you, that you did. Um, and, and I apologize for that. So what, now, does that do, what does that do to the credibility of the attorney general who's in the credibility business? Well, I, I think because politics plays a role in all this, I think for the Democrats, it, it, it hurts the credibility. For the Republicans, they, I, I'm not sure what, they're gonna, what they think about it, quite frankly. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm more worried about the supplemental than I am about the initial response. And there may be a reason that I'm aware of, that I'm not aware of, as to why General Sessions believed that that, that supplemental response was, was accurate mm -hmm. and complete. Um, but, it, but anyway, it's, um, um, I, it, it, it's sort of a, it's an unfortunate misstep, I think. But I, I certainly understand when you're in that hearing, hour after hour of questioning, sometimes you're going to make a mistake. And, and uh, I think that he wasn't properly staffed in that. You don't, read the, you don't read your own transcript, but your staff reads the transcript. And someone should have caught the fact that that was a, that was that question was not appropriately answered, 
And that should have been addressed before someone else identified it as a potential issue for, for general sessions. Rolanda, Rolando in Atlanta, you're on uh, Indivisible with um, former U.S. Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez. Hi, Rolando. Hey, thanks for taking my call. What an honor. Uh, my question is simple. What, what if after um, all proceedings, uh, the president and his cabinet is found guilty of colluding uh, with, the, with the Russian government? It, it sounds like you touched upon this already, but does the public have any recourse in this matter? I mean, is there a, an ability to completely remove the, the, the cabinet itself, or is it too little too late? Well, you're talking about... Uh, um situation or hypothetical that is so so extraordinary, so extreme that it's difficult for me to even comprehend what that might look like. Uh, I, I have to believe that we still have honorable men and women that serve in our government and that it would not be true that every that the president, that vice president, and that every member of the cabinet was in collusion with the Russian government. I, I, there's no there's not even there's no reason to even think about, think that to be true, and therefore, you know, uh, it's just a hypothetical that I think is just too extreme to respond to. Well, there must be some kind of reasonable suspicion that it is true, or the FBI director wouldn't have opened a formal investigation. Or is that wrong? Well, I thought I think the question was whether or not if the president, every member of the cabinet. Ah. Now it may it may be that somebody in the Trump organization. That was involved in some kind of collusion. But the notion that the president, the vice president, everybody in the cabinet right. was involved, I, I, that's, uh, that's just, right. I, I think, ridiculous. Well, we now know that in the year when Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were the nominees for president, the FBI under James Comey was investigating both of them, Clinton for the private email server and Trump associates, if not Trump himself, for campaign collusion with Russia. Do you think we just had a uniquely you know, a sort of historically unique moment of these political leaders flirting with the edges of the law? Or did the FBI overreach doing all these investigations of presidential candidates? Or if you were attorney general, what might have you been thinking about that fact? <laughs> well, first of all, one of the questions I would ask is where was the attorney general with respect to the email investigation? Uh, you know, the attorney general seemed to sort of be missing in action and left it entirely into the hands of the FBI, which I, I, be, I believe is worrisome because the FBI, the job of the FBI is to investigate cases and then present the evidence to the, the prosecutor, the Attorney General Loretta Lynch, and then she is to make the determination as to whether or not a crime has been committed and whether or not to move forward with the prosecution. Uh, but she seemed to be sort of strangely missing in action. You're right. We have just witnessed a historically different campaign and obviously contributing to the to what what made it so unique is the fact that both of the both republican and democratic candidates were under investigation for potential crimes although in fairness to Donald Trump you know uh it it's not clear at all that in fact he was personally involved that he personally colluded uh it's possible that a member of his organization did so without mm -hmm. Donald Trump's knowledge we all understand that with respect to Hillary Clinton it was all about what did she do? What did she intend to do? What did she know? Right. Although, in fairness to Clinton, I'll ask one more follow-up question about this. Comey revealed yesterday in the hearing that his investigation into Russian meddling and the possible collusion began last July. That means at the height of the campaign, Comey went public with damning statements about Clinton 
twice in July and with the Comey letter one week before Election Day, and that the Trump campaign was under investigation at the same time for possible election tampering, and he never said anything. This is making Democrats' heads explode today, and you you can't be in Comey's brain. But do you understand what he did that can look so much like a double standard? Absolutely. And that's why you typically would not do what Jim Comer did last July in coming out and giving that major press conference. I, in my judgment, again, I don't know what I don't know. There may be circumstances that I'm unaware of. Uh, I, I found it to be extraordinary, and, and maybe there were extraordinary circumstances that required that. I don't know the difference, though, that may exist with respect to different treatment of Trump uh, and the uh, and the Clinton investigation is that I believe, maybe I'm wrong, um, perhaps there was information already out there that was already public about the Clinton investigation that didn't exist last July with respect to a possible investigation of Russian ties last July. But I, again, I have to go back and think about mm-hmm. it, but maybe that's the difference in treatment. Ask a U.S. Attorney General, Brian, in Brooklyn, New York. Brian, you're on Indivisible. Hi. Hi. I'm calling about uh, Preet Bahada. I know that he was a uh, one of the attorneys that was fired by Trump, one of 46. I know that he uh, resigned. It was not – oh, no, he did not resign. He was fired. He, and I'm wondering, like, as a former attorney general – if you were in Preet Bharara's shoes, what would be next for him? I don't know. What I don't know if you know him personally. But I, I guess I don't understand the question. What do you mean next? Well, for he's him? asking. I think he's asking what comes next for Preet Bharara. Let me redirect the question and ask: What did you think about the way Sessions fired the forty-six remaining Obama appointee U.S. attorneys in one fell swoop the other week? Well, you know. Uh, it may have been inconvenient, uh, and some people may view it as unfair, but there was nothing improper about it. Uh, U.S. attorneys serve at the pleasure of the president. When he no longer has, has pleasure in your service, you can be removed for any reason, even for a bad reason. You can't be removed to obstruct justice. For example, it would be improper for the president or Sessions to fire someone who's investigating Trump. That would that would be improper. But But for virtually any other reason... You can be removed, and you don't have to give an explanation. Uh, and it is true that typically uh, a president and the attorney general is entitled to have his own team. Uh, U.S. attorneys are the sort of the field generals for the Department of Justice, and you want to have your own team. And it's quite customary that certainly at the beginning of an administration, there is tremendous turnover in the U.S. attorney ranks. Uh, president Clinton fired all 93 when he came into office. So, you know, again, it can seem unfair, It can, uh, and it can certainly be inconvenient for these individuals, but everyone understands the rules of the road. You serve at the pleasure of the president, and when he asks you to leave, then you have to leave. So that goes to a question, I think, of what is a U.S. attorney, and for that matter, a U.S. attorney general, for and supposed to represent, mm-hmm. supposed to represent the law, not politics. Certainly we hear any U.S. Attorney General say that, but as Sessions reminded the world at that moment, these are also political appointees. So how much of each and how different from a Supreme Court justice is that? Well, you have to remember that I mean, you're making the assumption, or maybe I'm, I'm misreading your question, that if you remove the Attorney General, somehow you obstruct justice. U.S. Attorney, I mean, if you were to remove a U.S. Attorney, U.S. Attorney's offices are staffed with career individuals 
they they are for the most part are the ones investigating the cases, prosecuting the cases, and the fact that there is a change in that head right. position doesn't mean that those prosecutions and investigations stop. But the changes are for, are for political purposes, right? So that if we have, you know, and, Rudy Giuliani was a U.S. attorney, so is Chris Christie, very different people from Eric Holder and Loretta Lynch, to take Attorney General examples, right? Absolutely. They they are political appointees because you have to remember that not only is the Attorney General the chief law enforcement officer of the country, he is also the chief proponent of the law enforcement priorities of the president. He's a member of the president's team. He has an obligation to promote the president's law enforcement objectives. And yes, these are political appointees. And oftentimes, that the politics that come into play are, 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 are put into place by the home state senators who want to reward, a, you know, mm-hmm. a, a donor, want to put their own person in place. So, and yes, absolutely. These are very political appointees. James in Houston, you're on Indivisible. Hi, James. James, you there? Hi. Go ahead. What's yes, your, it's wh- a great honor to be talking to a former attorney general, but thank you for having me. What's your question? Uh, well, uh, my initial question was already asked by a previous caller, uh, but I do have a second question, um, kind of uh, along the lines of uh, cronyism. Um, I was wondering, uh, what, as a former attorney general, what do you, how do you view um, Trump assigning positions like Betsy DeVos and Scott Pruitt to the EPA um, when these people have almost no credentials to, I don't know, be allowed to be in charge of these areas? I mean, just because they gave... And James, I'm going to I'm going to jump in and and move on actually because that's a <clears throat> political question um, that has to do with policy and cabinet members, and it's not really something under the attorney general's purview, which is where we're trying to keep this tonight. So I'm going to move on from that and not take time with it. But I appreciate your call. Actually, I want to ask you about a way that you came up today. Um, I don't even know if you heard this yet in the news. You came up in the Gorsuch hearings. I'm going to play a clip here of Senator Dianne Feinstein, Democrat from California, asking Gorsuch a question pertaining to a document he wrote about torture or enhanced interrogation during the Bush administration. The attorney general she refers to in this question is you. Their set of talking points were prepared for a press conference for the Attorney General on November 22, 2005. The talking points ask whether, and I quote, aggressive interrogation techniques employed by the administration yielded any valuable information, end quote. And in the margin next to this question, you handwrote one word, yes. What information did you have that the Bush administration's aggressive interrogation techniques were effective. So what do you remember about that document and Gorsuch's role? Is that ringing a bell? I have no specific recollection of that document. Uh, I have general recollection that that Neil would have been involved uh, in providing input. Not necessarily, you know, he was the number two person for the number three person for the Associate Attorney General Robert McCallum uh, in charge of civil litigation as a general matter. Uh, and so, you know, de- depending on what else is going on within the department at the, t- at the particular time, Neil may have, you know, been really focused on on this question or, or not really focused on this question. So but I-, I can't really comment 
beyond that because I just, I just don't remember the document. I certainly don't remember Neil's role in this. And one more on this. Feinstein then asked about Gorsuch advising President Bush to issue a signing statement when he signed an anti-torture bill with the goal being, she said, that the signing statement would set the stage for the president to keep using waterboarding and other controversial techniques and limit the ability of detainees to sue if they were subject to them. What's your recollection of Gorsuch's interest in a signing statement? Um, Again, I don't have specific recollection of uh, that advice from Neil Gorsuch, but as a general matter, you know, signing statements cannot overrule a law passed by Congress. Um, they represent the advice by the executive branch, to, um, by the president to the executive branch, and also to notify the Congress that they're going to enforce the law, to implement the law in a way that is consistent with the president's constitutional authority, and I'm assuming in this case as commander-in-chief to protect our nation from uh, from foreign threats. But in terms of your specific question, you know, I just have no recollection mm-hmm. Of the signing statement. All right, we have one minute left. Let's do a one-question lightning round with James and Little Rock. James, you're on the air. Real quick, what's your question? Hi, Brian. Hi, General. General, if um, what happened to Merrick Garland? Is it your opinion that that was constitutional? And if it was constitutional, in your opinion, how long can the Senate wait to consider a president's uh, nomination? Just think about when mm-hmm. you were. Uh, doing Judge Roberts or Alito. And Judge, we have 30 seconds. Okay, I'm on record saying that I, I thought what the uh, Republicans did to Judge Merrick Garland was very unfortunate and, and should not have happened. Uh, the president did his job in nominating a well-qualified individual. The Senate should have done its job in giving him a hearing and voting him up or down. Constitutional? Controlled it. Constitutional, though? I think it's within the power. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that the Senate has to provide a hearing and uh, an up or down vote within a certain period of time. And that has to be the last word for tonight. Former U.S. Attorney General uh, Judge Alberta Gonzalez, now the dean at Belmont University Law School. Thank you so much for this. We really, really appreciate it. And our listeners are so grateful. Thank you. Tomorrow night on Indivisible, uh, our Wednesday night host, Charlie Sykes, explores what it means to be a conservative judge. Thanks so much for listening tonight. I'll talk to you next Tuesday night. Brian Lehrer on Indivisible. Keep the conversation going with our hashtag, Indivisible Radio. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.